You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Try. Good morning. You got to like double the volume through the mask. All right. It's great to see you. One quick story before we dive into our passage. We'll be in Luke 22 and 23 if you want to turn there in your Bibles. But we've been praying, right? Who's your one? We've been more intentional and thinking about it. So I try to frequent um, places more often just to build relationships. And so I like Scooter's Coffee here in uh, Waukee, a little bit of advertisement. So my barista, pretty regular, uh, early in the morning, she says, so how's the property going? Because I've been telling her about Westbrook and all that. And I said, well, really good, working on it. A lot of people involved, but we're not opening uh, this Easter, as we kind of talked about. She says, well, what are you doing for Easter? I said, well, I got some invite cards here. And her name's Savannah, and we've been getting to know each other. And just one little, um, over the past month, connection to people in our community, inviting them, and who knows? Who knows uh, what will happen? But we are hopeful that you're prayerful, intentional, and this week of prayer and fasting uh, really can bring some great results for the kingdom and glory of God. So let's keep that journey going. So do you have your Bibles? You armed with your sword? Let me see it. Who's got their sword? Come on. You know, this would be a tough crew to go to battle with. Let me see it one more time. Who's got your sword? Throw up your phone. All right. Yeah, Luke 22. I tell you, if I'm going into battle, I want to be armed, right? And I hope you realize this is a battle. But we got a lot of territory to cover this morning. I'm doing something I've never done. I'm going to preach for almost two chapters of Scripture. Call me dumb. That's fine. No, someone says, no, I'm not going to do that, Pastor. Her husband said, yeah, I'll do it. Way to go, Eikenberry. Yeah. Nice. So you've heard of Bill O'Reilly, right? A few years ago, he wrote a book, Killing Jesus. Pretty interesting title. So I went on Amazon, and I said, I wonder how well that book did. It got over 12,000 reviews with a 4.5 out of 5. But it begged a question. Why would a book with such a daunting title, Killing Jesus be so popular, get such press. And I thought through it and I said, well, because it's the most remarkable event in human history. Would you agree? We're going into Holy Week and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is of paramount importance. And so we are going to dive in this morning, and we are going to learn some truths, and ultimately the truth is, why did Jesus die? Now, there's so much you could say about that, but we're going to limit it to a few things so we really hang our hat where we should, where Luke wants us. So we're in the Gospel of Luke, and I always encourage you to take out your Connect cards. You know I'm a fan of someone taking notes. So even if there's one person, we're going to print connect cards and encourage you to take notes, share that with folks, and uh, a beautiful passage. So we start with the blessing, and here's the neat thing today. The blessing answers the question, 
And so the blessing is this. The death of Jesus is the fulfillment of divine revelation of Scripture. If you've been with us in this Lucan journey, you know this. Luke believes in fulfillment. The story of Jesus is not new. It is old. It began in Genesis 3.15. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But if you know the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 4, Jesus is in Nazareth. He takes the scroll, he opens it up, it's Isaiah 61, he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. What's fulfilled? The year of Jubilee. He came to set the captives free. Then the gospel of Luke closes in Luke 24, you know how it closes? Fearful disciples, hiding, running, Jesus shows up miraculously, the glorified son of God, and what does he do? He says, peace be with you, don't be fearful, and he opens up the scriptures, and he shows them from Moses, from the Psalms and the prophets, all that must be fulfilled about Jesus. Yes, Luke is about fulfillment, and today we're going to see three things that are ultimately fulfilled in the death of Christ. So let's dive in, fulfillment number one. The death of Jesus fulfills humanity's need for redemption. We talked about this last week, folks, but please hear me. This is the gospel. This is good news. How can dying be good news? That is the mystery, but that is God's sovereignty, that he sent his son to die, and yes, it meets humanity's ultimate need. Now, I had a ha-ha moment this uh, past week. One of the basic Bible study tools is just called observation. What you see is what you get, right? You don't need commentaries. You don't need Greek lexicons. Just read the Bible. Boom, the Spirit and the Word will speak. That's what happened when I read Luke 22 and 23. I had no idea I was going to cover two chapters. But when the aha moment came on, this point resurrected. So... Can I encourage you? Let me walk you through the next two chapters and show you humanity's need. This is pretty powerful. Let's start out with Luke 22, 1 through 2. The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was drawing near. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. What's going on? Jesus is popular right? He comes off the Mount of Olives riding on a colt. Hail, king of the Jews. He's teaching in the temple, and yeah, he's getting pretty uh, uh, intense, turning over the money changers, rebuking people, but there's a following. And the religious establishment, once again, is out to get him. And so the plot begins with the religious establishment. Please don't miss this. Now, jumping down to verses 3 and 4, The plot thickens. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and, notice, next group, temple police, how he could hand him over to them. Now there's a collusion. One of the twelve, Luke wants you to know, one of the band of brothers who ran with Jesus, who was taught by Jesus, who experienced the miracles, the healings, the teaching, is now betraying. And Satan enters him. The religious establishment are in partnership. Now, if you think that's bad, 
continue on. Look at Luke 22, 33 through 34. And now we're in a different setting. We're in Jerusalem. We're in a place called what's called the Upper Room. They're celebrating Passover. Remember, Jesus says, hey, uh, let's get this ready. This is Passover. Ultimately, it became communion. And by the way, we're going to come back to Luke 22 for four weeks. But look what happens. Lord, he told him, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Who's talking? During the Passover meal, this is Peter. You can count me in, Jesus. I'm your guy. I'm your right-hand guy, one of the inner three. What does Jesus say? I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you deny me three times that you know me. Do you see how it's growing? We start out with the religious establishment, the temple police, Judas, one of the 12, and now Peter who says, I'm your man, is going to deny not once, twice, but three times. And by the way, you can add the other 10. They abandon him as well. Continuing on, Luke 22, 47 through 48, while he was still speaking, now we're in Gethsemane, suddenly a mob was there. Isn't it interesting that Luke would include the mob? You know who uh, Matthew says it is? It's the soldiers, a legion, Rome is showing up, a military mob. And one of the 12 named Judas was leading them. How interesting. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And now we move from Gethsemane to Jerusalem. Look at Luke 22, 66 to 67. When daylight came, okay, so now it's early in the morning. We're in Jerusalem. The elders of the people, both with the chief priests and the scribe, convened and brought in before, notice this next phrase, folks, their Sanhedrin, they said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. Who's the Sanhedrin? This is Israel's supreme court. This is becoming all-inclusive. Everybody's getting involved in the arrest, the trial, and the death of Christ. And now it continues. Look at Luke 23, 1. Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him before who? Pontius Pilate. You've heard of him, right? He's governor. He's representing Rome. He has no interest in uh, spiritual affairs of Judaism. And now he's involved in this process. And by the way, three times Jesus came before Pilate. And three times Pilate declared him, I find no fault in this man. Release him. How interesting. Now, continuing on, 23, 6 through 7, when Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Found that he, finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. So what Pilate tries to do is he tries to just push it off on some other Roman official. His name is Herod Agrippa, who was hanging out in Jerusalem. Folks, this is overwhelming what is going on from the upper room to Gethsemane to Jerusalem to the Sanhedrin to Pilate to Herod, but it gets worse, and it culminates here. Look at Luke 23, 18 through 21, and this is, I think, for me what happened. This was the aha moment, and I saw something that I don't think I've seen before. 
Then they all cried out together, take this man away. Release Barabbas, who was a convicted criminal. He had been thrown into prison for rebellion that had taken place in a city and for murder. Pilate wanted to release Jesus, addressing them again. But notice, if you miss this phrase, you miss the kicker. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Let me ask you a question. Who's the they? This is a demonstrative pronoun. It's pointing back to a group of people. Who's the they in this passage? This is the people of Jerusalem. These are the same people who said, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. And his remarkable reality here, folks. And the question I had to ask as I just simply read through these chapters, why did Luke go through such a painstaking process to include so many people in the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus? And I came to the conclusion that that question is answered by a, a spiritual hymn that was sung, recorded, uh, created in 1899. It's a hymn that has withstood the test of time. It's been around for 120 years. It's a hymn that I engaged this past week just for my own soul. And many artists have re-recorded it, Johnny Cash being one. And as I listened to his rendition, boy, it just so inspired me. It was so emotional. But do you know the hymn? Were you there? Do you remember that one? Were you there when they crucified our Lord, were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Oh, oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, to tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they thrust the sword into his side? Were you there when the sun ceased to shine? Oh, Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, to tremble. Were you there? I hope you realize that's a rhetorical question, right? Luke wants us to know all of humanity was there that faithful night and morning. We were there, folks. We crucified him. And yes, those acidic words crucify him, crucify him, came in real time 2,000 years ago, but I know this in my heart of hearts, I was there. And lest we forget that Jesus died for the sins of humanity because God so loved the world. An article was written years ago, and the question was asked, what is wrong with humanity G.K. Chesterton got it right. He wrote back two worlds, I am. That's why Jesus died. He died because we have a problem, that problem sin. And like we said last week, after all of what went on here, what's the first words he cries from Calvary? Father, forgive them, not once, but many times they don't know what they're doing. The basic need you and I have is to be forgiven. Why? Because our sins have separated us from God. Sin brings death. 
The soul that sins is a soul who will die. And what does Christ do? Father, forgive them. After all he went through, that faithful night and morning, Father, forgive them. What does forgiveness provide? It provides reconciliation through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And now we can be in right relationship with God. It's his work on behalf of us. He did something for us we could not do. Oh, oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. And it should. And so the question this morning is this. Have you experienced the greatest gift in life? Forgiveness through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Have you, like the thief on the cross, called out to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you went to paradise. Today you'll be with me in heaven. That's forgiveness. Colossians, Paul says this, you and I have a debt, and he took our debt of sin, he nailed it to the tree, and you know what that debt is? Paid in full. That's good news, folks. That's why dying is good news because it's the Son of God paying the debt of sin. You and I can be forgiven. Right relationship with God, peace and reconciliation forever. What a blessing. Fulfillment number two. The death of Jesus fulfills the diabolical role and efforts of Satan. And folks, please stick with me. I just let this text speak this week. I read it, it spoke. And I was shocked in Luke 22 and 23 how prevalent the activity of Satan is. Now, in 21st century, sophisticated Western thinking, guess what? We don't think Satan's a real entity. Okay, if he's not real, where's all this evil come from? If he's not real, how come we had so much sin in our life this past week? I shared in our little prayer group as I was coming into worship this morning. I just had a time of confession over at the property. God, clean my heart. Make my hands clean, my mind clean, my motives clean. Folks, if there isn't evil, or if there isn't Satan, what is the source of evil? And so we got to be honest about evil and who's behind it. And we're going to see some remarkable things in Luke. Now, remember fulfillment? If you can flip all the way to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I would like you to do that. I want you to see something that's so remarkable here. What's going on in this, uh, these chapters, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, is all about fulfillment. If you're familiar with the garden, right? Adam and Eve had the best. A relationship with God, a relationship with each other. And, and the garden, Eden, means pleasure. But don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She eats, gives to her husband, he eats, and what happens? Guilt, shame, retreating from God, hiding. And what does God do? He lovingly pursues them. He kills an innocent animal. He gives them clothing, clothing to hide, his, hide their guilt. But in verse 13, God talks to Satan prophetically. And he makes a promise for all history. Follow with me. God says to Satan, I'll put hostility between you, meaning Satan, and the woman, 
And between your seed and her seed, he, Jesus, will strike your head. That's victory. And you, Satan, will do what? Strike his heel. What you're going to see right now in the arrest, the, the trials, the death, it looks like Satan has the upper hand. You're going to see the Son of God having his heel being stricken. Now, going back to Satan and who he is and his real activity, in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, we read this. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him, meaning Jesus, notice this phrase, for a time. For a time. You see, Satan always looks for the opportune time in your life and mine. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says he has a schematic on your life and mine. And there is what's called in Ephesians 6, the day of evil. This now is Christ's day of evil where Satan puts out all his resources. He left him for a time, but now the time is right. And so let's take a look what happens. So in Luke 22.3, we've already seen it. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. What does it mean that Satan entered Judas? Can I just give you a few thoughts? Means absolute influence, absolute empowerment, absolute control. Now let me ask you a question. Is Judas culpable? Did he play any role in it? The Bible's very clear he's culpable. He yielded to Satan's influence and control for 30 pieces of silver. That's been Luke's thing all along. The love of money, the root of all evil. That's very clear in Pauline theology. Luke builds on that. He yielded to mammon. And so Satan enters, and now he's a tool in the enemy's hand. Now, let's jump up to... Luke 22, 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I had another aha moment this week. The you here is plural. It literally should be translated you all. Satan has demanded, he has requested to sift all of you disciples. Isn't that interesting? You familiar with the metaphor, kind of winnowing? I'm a city boy, so I have to read about these things. I've never winnowed, don't know a whole lot about wheat, but I can read about it. In Israel, they have high places. And when you get your crop, you get your wheat, you go up to a threshing floor called Aruna, right in Jerusalem, where Mount Moriah is. And you take the wheat, you throw it up, and because there's an altitude, the wind blows the chaff away. Think of the metaphor here. What does Satan ultimately want to do to the disciples and to us? It's singular, folks. Separate you from the wheat, Jesus. Estrange you from him. Cause you to deny him, Peter, three times. Abandon him in his time of need, the ten disciples. And then offer the kiss of death. I'm done with you, as Judas did. 
And friends, lest we think that Satan only worked then like this, this is his tactic today. If he can separate you from your savior, savior, there is a slippery slope of destruction. And so time and time again, as life and ministry goes on, we see his efforts. And boy, is he working overtime these days. Can I share with you just briefly my heart as we've gone through this COVID for the past year? I want to thank God for our staff, our elders, very prayerful. It hasn't been easy. I'm just going to be honest with you. We've had some very difficult decisions to make, some very difficult time. But about six months into COVID, I read an article, it was a Barner report. And as a pastor, it broke my heart because what the Barner report did, and this is factual stuff in Christendom today. It basically said this, there's three groups of Christians right now. Prior to COVID, this group was meeting for worship, gathering to, to honor and glorify God, but basically right now we got three groups in Christendom. One who's, who's meeting, feels comfortable to meet in person. The other who's online, thank God for that, for such a good resource, worship together we've called it at Westwind. Thank you, Lord, for that. But then there's a third group, and it's about one-third who are totally disconnected from the body of Christ. And as elders and as pastors, oh, man, it breaks our heart, guys. Why? We're shepherds of the sheep. Can you imagine being a flock of 100 people and 33% are gone? Now, is God still working? Of course he is. Can we reach out? Yes, we can. But boy, there's work to do for the kingdom and glory of God. Why? It becomes a slippery slope. We have even heard from just God-honoring people at Westwood. They say, Pastor, you know, it's just been so easy just to put on the PJs and, and drink the coffee. I understand that, especially the coffee stuff. I don't have PJs. Oh, well. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> Okay, yeah, so, so here's, here's the thing. Can I mention this? Please hear me. We're all at risk, and you know what the risk is? You have an enemy, 1 Peter 5, who prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's us. That's the people of God, and one of the ways he does is he throws it up, and tries to separate us from our Savior. So can I encourage you today? Stay connected. Walk with the Lord. We've had this theme for three years. Abide daily. Stay connected. And if you're comfortable, please come to worship. But definitely join us online. Let's stay together as the body of Christ. And if you know of any sheep who have drifted, please reach out. Please be pastoral. Help the body of Christ stay together. Right? One final scene of Satan, and then we jump into really a beautiful closure. Look at Luke 22, 52 through 53. And this is a hard one, folks. He's in Gethsemane now. He's being arrested. Remember the mob, the Romans, the soldiers? And he says, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple complex, you never laid a hand on me. And I want you to notice this phrase, because if you miss this phrase, you miss it all in Luke. But this is your hour 
and the dominion of darkness. Think about it. This is Genesis 3.15. This is Satan bruising the heel of the Messiah. This is your hour. You get a moment to have the upper hand, but guess what? It's only Friday, and what's coming? And Sunday's coming. C.S. Lewis captured this. If you've seen the, the lion, the witch, in the wardrobe, Remember Aslam, he walks to the altar. He volitionally gives his life. Lucy and Susan, they're in despair. They're in dismay. All hope is lost. That was Friday, but guess what? Sunday's coming. And Aslan's raised. And the victory goes forward. And we take our sword, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and we go out and do battle. And we say, Lord, prayerfully and intentionally, who's our one? Because we want to offer your forgiveness. We want to see Satan destroyed, all his efforts annihilated, so the kingdom and glory of God can reign in our midst. Now, one final application before we go to the final point. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he wants to do to each and every one of you here. That is his mission. But you know this? Satan knows the end game. He knows that Christ the Messiah is going to crush the serpent's head. He knows it. But between Genesis 3.15 and the time he's thrown into the lake of fire, guess what? He is going to work overtime to kill, steal, and destroy the people of God and the plan of God. Don't let him get the upper hand. Don't let him throw up the weed of your life and separate you from Christ. Stay connected to Jesus. Stay connected to each other. Let's worship our King. Now finally, fulfillment number three. The death of Jesus fulfills the divine plan of God. Track with me. Got a few more minutes. Let's look at Luke 22, 66 through 71. This is remarkable, folks, what happens here. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. Notice the titles they're using for Jesus. They say, if you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all ask, are you then the Son of God? He replied, notice, don't miss this. You are right in saying I am. Then they said, notice the implications. Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from our lips. They called it blasphemy. You know what's beautiful in this passage? The religious establishment figured out who Jesus was. They give three titles that all point to the glorious gospel of Christ. Don't miss this, folks. So let's take a look. Notice, too, in verse 70, where, where Jesus uh, answers the question when they say, are you God's divine messenger? He says, you are right in saying I am. So what do we learn by the gospel as we close God's divine plan? Number one, the gospel reveals that Jesus is the Messiah and he is the suffering servant. Friends, you go all the way back to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Jesus inquires, hey, who do people say that I am? They gave a list. What about you? What do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, way to go, Peter. 
God revealed this to you, and then immediately after that, here's what Jesus said to Peter. I must suffer so that, so that all might be fulfilled. He is the suffering servant. He is the Messiah promised. He is Genesis 3.15. Thank God for that. Secondly, in addition, the gospel reveals that Jesus is the Son of God. And when you see that title, of course, divinity, but you also see the sinless perfection You see the unblemished land being slain for the foundation of the world. And so, I've already shared, it's remarkable what happens in Luke 23. Three times, don't miss this, Luke is relentless. Three times, Pilate says, I find no fault in this man, release him. Ships him off to King Herod. King Herod said the same. The Roman officials testified as to his righteousness, his sinlessness. And then there was a centurion, Luke 23, 47. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, this man really was righteous. Isn't that remarkable? They're killing him. And yet there's testimony after testimony that he is the sinless, righteous son of God. And then finally, and this is the kicker, Jesus is the son of man, honored to the right hand of the Father. I want you to look at Luke 22, verse 69. We're going to close with this. And this is such an important statement. It's so remarkable. The phrase, but from now on, is a really important phrase in the original language. This is a hinge phrase. This means something new is happening. This is new beginning kind of language. There is a new covenant being inaugurated. But from now on... From the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, what's going to happen? The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. You know what's happening? It's a role reversal. Here he is at Calvary. He's beaten. He's mocked. He's spit on. He's crowned with thorns. 39 lashes on his back with a whip, bone, metal, glass. He's naked on a tree. He is shamed in a culture of honor and shame. But there's a role reversal. You know what's going to happen to shame? Christ cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When Christ humbly dies, when he gives his life obediently as a ransom for many, there's a role reversal. He goes from shame to honor. Let me close with Philippians 2. It's one of the beautiful passages about Christ in Scripture. Because of his death, burial, and resurrection, because he was obedient to the point of death, because he humbled himself, you know what the Father did? Therefore, God the Father highly exalted Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will do what? Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's exaltation. Yes, he was humbled. Yes, Satan crushed him for a moment. But that was Friday, Sunday's coming. And now he's exalted, seated at the right hand of the Father, the Son of Man. And so it begs just a few questions this morning. Were you there? We all were, weren't we? And have you received the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ? Do you see that Satan despises your relationship with Christ and wants to separate you? 
like wheat and chaff. Be on your guard. Resist and firm in your faith. And then finally, have you embraced the divine plan of God? Is Jesus Christ your Messiah, the suffering servant, your son of God, your, your sinless, spotless lamb who died? And is he your exalted one? You worship him in spirit and in truth. May it be so. Let's stand as we worship.